Jessica Mernan is a creative consultant, the founder of No Yorendo, and the author of the One Part Plant Cookbook. Her next book, No Yorendo, an empowering guide to health and hope with endometriosis, will be released this coming April. Thank you for coming on today. Of course. Exciting. I, I want to start as far back as I can. I don't really understand your timeline. Hmm. When did you work? at RSVP Gallery. I worked for Virgil Abloh. You worked for Virgil Abloh. And okay. I don't want this I don't want this to be in like the show notes or like the description of me. No, no, okay? no, no. Okay. No, no. I think he's an incredibly nice guy, but yeah. I just I'm very I have worked for a few different celebs types and I just I feel like it's sometimes so opportunistic when and I'm not saying you're doing this, but it's no, like No. No. Just I, I'm going like, to try to do, I would like to try to do the opposite actually. Right. Okay. But anyway, <clears throat> so that was, I don't know. That was before he was, that was when he was with Kanye, but he wasn't like Virgil, like right. the one name people know him. I don't know how long, that was maybe like seven, eight years ago, maybe. No, it was longer than that. Was it? Yeah. Okay. So then you do know my timeline. Because it was me. before I knew you and I've known you. No, for no, years. it was not. Oh, no, actually, that is where I met you for the first time. You came into RSVP and we were having a meeting. You and I were having a meeting. Yeah, we went someplace like next oh. door from RSVP. Yes, and you yes. were starting up Suter Life, which well, was- Well, I had already had Suter for a while, the paper goods stuff. And that's actually part of the reason how I met Virgil was because- I had handed him my business card. And this was like before people were like, oh my gosh, paper stock. It was something that was important to me. And <laughs> right. I handed it to him. He was like, what is this? Like, how did you get it so thick? How did you get the And I'm like, oh, I do this. This is what I do. So then I did cards for RSVP. And then I came in because I knew one of the other owners to do some stuff with them. So you had Suter. How mm -hmm. did you get into paper? I had a stationary, like a physical store way before that. I had that when I was 23 or 24. I was working at Paper Source, a big paper store. They did wedding where, invitations. Where are they based? Chicago. Okay. Yeah. But then they had stores. They expanded really big. And I studied graphic design in school. And my dream was to design book covers and album covers. And then I got a job at Paper Source designing wedding invitations. And then the woman that I worked with there were like, why don't we just do this on our own? So we opened up a stationery store and the margins on stationery is very low. And so custom is how we made all of our money. So I had originally been in paper goods and then my partner and I broke up, took a little detour, opened up a bar with another celebrity type person and during that time I'm like I just should, I just want to get back to paper goods it feels like a, a safe space for me so then I did round two of my paper good life was suitor gotcha. I've had a and lot of jobs what was the thesis of, of suitor how was it different well it was different in a way that I thought would be great but I think I was a little early my <laughs> minimalist trend it was just white paper with just black letterpress set type on it just that's it and it was definitely around the time that rifle emerged rifle right. paper company emerged which is the polar opposite of what i was doing it was digitally pressed it was offset it was super colorful it was a little bit of a harder sell for me. But then one of my dreams was to get into the Walker Art Museum and they bought my stuff, but they bought like seven packs. And so it was weird because I got into the places that I feel like got what I was doing, but you can't make a living off of seven packs of stationery. So right. I made all of my money from custom work, doing business cards and invitations and working with restaurants and brands and things like that to design things for them. But yeah, I, I don't think I ever want to design again, though. I don't want to revisit that life. Yeah, I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> I 
having been there myself, <laughs> but I can't help but make stuff. I'm making this now. There's yeah, something I'll, in I'll a maker. Make stuff. Yeah. And it's so weird because I don't consider, and I think that term maker is very cool and acceptable and everything. I don't know if I consider myself a maker because I can, I guess I think of makers as being more like I was, I sent all my stuff to like the press. Like I'm not printing the stuff myself. Like I don't want to cut it myself. Like you, I'll just design it and then you do all the rest. Like I wasn't actually, you know, sure. you're the designer with the, and, you have the yeah. aesthetic. Right. I believe they call that an aesthete. That's uh, a terrible yes, name. Exactly. But, but, and you still are, you still bring that element to everything that you, that you build. You're the contractor. You don't necessarily do the building yourself, but you bring together all the materials. You oversee the project. Yeah, I enjoy telling people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back before we go forward. I do want to mm -hmm. hear about what you tell people to do now, today. But how did you get to Chicago? You said you studied graphic design. Where did you study? Oh, Ohio University. Not really known for their graphic design program, but... I actually had like really great professors there and really taught me screen printing, letterpress. Like I did learn those things, which was pretty cool. And just an appreciation of yeah. type and its form, which was amazing. But then you get out of school and you're like, huh, what's this in design? I, I didn't really have a grasp on the programs as much, which felt very limiting to me. So when I graduated from college, I knew that I didn't want to move to a city where I had to have a car. I felt like my choices were Chicago and New York, and I chose Chicago. I didn't know anybody there. That was the only stipulation, just no cars. Yeah, I did not want to purchase a car, deal with a car. I didn't have one in college, and I just I had never even bought a car in my life. I would just right. borrow my parents, so I just didn't want to drive. We have one car in our house, and I live downtown Charleston, in a city where you don't really have to have to go to go to the beach or something. You need a car, but yeah, I try to drive the least amount possible. Where are you in the city? If people have been to Charleston, they've probably been to Leon's. I live right behind Leon's. So, yeah. I mean, Shout out to Mr. Brooks Wrights. Exactly. My heroes. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's, it's, I love this place so much. Yeah. And I guess we should tell our listeners that you and I met first when I moved to Chicago. Shortly after mm -hmm. I moved in 2011, we connected. Mm -hmm. And you left Chicago shortly before I left Chicago, correct? Yeah. You left I in 2014 or 15? I've been here for five years. So yeah, yeah, I guess it's so crazy. Yeah, because I was in Chicago for 17 years or so after college and then moved here. Mm -hmm. And you have had, I like to say that I've had a lot of jobs, but you've had just as many jobs. Mm -hmm. What were formative roles in your life? I had to work for my dad a lot, like doing a bunch of different stuff. But my first paycheck was Dairy Queen. And I still remember... If you can lean, you can clean. Like, I still remember that. <laughs> that was like what my manager would always say if you're just like, just chilling. If you can lean, you can clean. And I still think about that phrase. Like, and so I think everything I've done has, has informed my next thing. And it's weird because lately I just feel like they're not even jobs or careers. They were just projects in a way. And that's how I've been looking at it lately because I just finished writing my next book. And as much as I'm so proud of that book, I cannot wait for it to come out. I don't know how much I want to continue in the space that I wrote that book about. And that can be a little bit scary and intimidating and questioning, like, why did I even do that then? But it's, but maybe that was just a project that I did. There's nothing wrong with that too. What's the space? the endometriosis space. And I just finished a book on endometriosis and I love that community of people. If people don't know what endometriosis is, it's when the type of tissue that lines your uterus grows onto the outside of it and can grow on other parts of your body. It can be a very debilitating and life altering condition. And I have stage four. I just wrote 
a book about it, which is heavily researched, had a lot of doctors and experts in it. And I spent a year of my life doing that. And at the end of it, I'm like, okay, I feel like I am excited about this, but I don't know that I want to be that Indo expert for the next 20 years. That's so fascinating. Why not? But that's how I felt when I wrote my first book too. I wrote a cookbook and as I was writing, I was thinking, oh, am I just going to write cookbooks? And then I was finished writing it. I'm like, I never want to write another cookbook again. That's news. <laughs> that's news to me. So you build and then you publish and then you wave goodbye. I mean, that's not like the plan no, necessarily no, going no, no. into it. But and I mean, the, the other thing, too, is when I wrote One Part Plant, the cookbook, I was thinking, I don't know that I ever want to write another book again, period. And then I think what happens is like similar to what you were saying, how one career or job or project influences another. The amount of response that I got from that cookbook, because I mentioned endometriosis in that cookbook, people that emailed me and said, this is, I get very emotional whenever I talk about this. So sorry if I cry, but the people that messaged me that said, this is the first time I've ever seen that word anywhere or seeing that word made me investigate it. And then I got diagnosed at 40 years old after being in pain for 20 years. And I was like, from a cookbook. Exactly. And so I was like, man, I think I need to write a book about endometriosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'll be curious to see how when putting that out into the world, what that does, because it's clear that you have set the precedent that putting yourself out there informs what you're going to put out there next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do next. I, I think it's just, I don't want to say like hard line, like I am not going to continue in the endo space. But I think that for me personally, there is a lot of emotion and sadness in that space because to say that it's debilitating is not even giving it as, as much as it should. There's people that aren't able to work. There are people that their entire lives have been altered because of this condition. And writing that book was a very emotional and hard thing to do. And, and I think just because I am so sensitive and empathic, I just don't know if I can continue to be in that space for those reasons too. It hurts to hear people in so much pain and it's not a curable condition. We'll talk about how plants came into your life. Like I said, I have stage four endo and in the stages you can have stage one and be in just as much pain as someone that has stage four, but the, the stages are how severe that the, the disease has infiltrated your body. And so I was supposed to get a hysterectomy and actually my doctor gave me two options, hysterectomy, drug hormone therapy. I decided that I would get the hysterectomy I just was like, I don't care. I just want these parts out of me. I didn't know at the time that a hysterectomy doesn't necessarily guarantee an end of pain. But then a friend that you know of mine, Amanda, knew that I was heading towards those options. She took it upon herself to do research on my behalf and just Googled around and found some information about how taking out inflammatories and more plant-based diet could help with endometriosis. And at that point, I decided I was just going to get the hysterectomy, but I would just try it because she was nice enough to send it to me. And I tried it and my entire life changed, not just my endometriosis, but my career path changed after that. And at that time, I was working with a lot of restaurants and brands and, and I would get a lot of credit in, in addition to payment. So it's like I was working with the restaurants, like here's $6,000, but then also here's $3,000 in food trade because it's much cheaper for us to pay you that way. So I had a bunch of credit at restaurants, but I couldn't eat at any of these restaurants because I went plant-based. 
And that's when I started this restaurant program with some of the best restaurants and chefs in Chicago. And at the time it was different. I feel like now you can go to most restaurants and get a plant-based option. But I started working with them and I was like, look, I've got all this trade at these restaurants. I can't eat at any of them. I know that there's people that are like me that want to experience your restaurant. So let's have a program called One Part Plant. You'll have the option. One plant-based meal. I'll get it a bunch of press. It'll be fun. I'm going to have a website to host all the restaurants as a resource guide. And that's how I got a book deal, the One Part Plant book deal that I got unintentional. I was not like setting out to do a cookbook. I'm curious from like where you started after Amanda gave you the notion to try switching to a purely plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. What were some of the early fails? What were some of the early like successes? What were some of the things that you were able to go to these large restaurant groups in Chicago and say, why don't we work together on your version of this? I feel like two separate things. So one because I feel like I've worked with chefs enough to know they are not interested in me telling them what to make. So (laughs) I was like, not interested in consulting, just an idea. You make your dream dish. And it was kind of a challenge for a lot of them because so many of them relied on the trends of the time, like a lot of duck fat, a lot of butter, a lot of French techniques. I remember one chef, the first chef that just straight up denied me And then called me and said, it was because I'm intimidated by this. I'm intimidated to cook without butter or dairy, but I want to try. And so he tried and it was cool. So I think with those dishes, it was cool because I think a lot of these chefs got very creative. They used what was in season. I think personally for myself, because I didn't know how to cook at all. And here I am attempting this plant-based diet. And again, this is eight or nine years ago. So it's before a lot of the trends and the cookbooks and everything that's out now, this is not an exaggeration. For like two months, I just ate corn tortillas with salsa on top because like I didn't know what to eat, didn't know how to cook. I was intimidated to try new things because I didn't want to waste money on things that didn't turn out. And then it just got to a point where I'm like, okay, dude, like this diet thing is actually working. This is not a temporary this is the rest of your life. So you need to try, you need to teach yourself how to cook and you need to like, you have to eat more things than tortillas with salsa. And you know, what's so funny is I remember so well, we have a a mutual friend, Emily Pfeiffer, that now owns one of the most popular restaurants in LA. And this is like before she owned that, but she was still interested in cooking. And I felt so proud that I had made my own salsa (laughs) and put it on a tortilla that I took a picture of it and I sent it to Emily. I'm like, look what I just made. And it's just crazy. It was, that's how very little cooking skills I had that I felt so proud that I had made homemade salsa, which was essentially tomatoes, cilantro, and onions. The Mexican mirepoix. Yeah. (laughs) When did you realize that you have a voice? When did you realize I can congregate masses around things that I care about? Oh, that's nice of you. I mean, I don't know. It's weird because I think in grade school, middle school, high school, like I was like, I just remember so well being in grade school. I got made fun of all the time. I was stinky. I was gross. There was never a glimmer of hope of a boy liking me, but with the girls, I felt like I was sort of, and this sounds braggy, but you're asking like the leader in a way, even at a young age, but it didn't extend past that like small group of girls. And I think it's just because I have a general interest in people and their stories. And I mean, I love connecting people. That's one of my most favorite things in the world is to connect people and make them feel good and make them feel better. So I don't know if it's wanting to be an influencer or whatever word that you want to use. I just genuinely like connecting with people and connecting them to things that might make them feel good. Yeah. The thing that like I find 
I find fascinating about the people that do that naturally is that they, so I used to be the kind of person who would begrudgingly do it. Do you know what I mean? Like I would do it and I would feel like pain afterwards when the people that I introduced would go off and make something cool together and I was left in the dust Uh or when I would introduce him to another person that I loved and adored and they would go off and have their own relationship outside of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it would seem from the outside to be deeper and more meaningful than the relationship that I had with those individuals. Mm-hmm. I know I'm bearing my soul here a little bit, but I, I like I'm, it. Wa- I'm wondering if there's been times in your life where you weren't connected with what you were doing. So you felt I can be in this space. I can be doing these things, but I'm worried that I'm going to lose part of myself in the process, or I'm going to, I'm going to bite off more than I can chew. Have you ever found yourself in a space where you're like struggling with that, with how do I fit in here? How do talking about being a leader among the girls, but feeling like an outcast among the boys, stinky or whatever. I can imagine that there's, that there's something deeper there, but I can also imagine that there are parts of that have evolved and that you've been able to grow past. Even being in the food space, I got a cookbook deal. I remember telling someone that I got a book deal. They're like, what are you writing about? It's a cookbook, but you don't cook. And I'm like, I taught myself. I haven't seen you in three years, but it's understandable that you don't think I can write a cookbook. So I think even being in the food space, I remember having so much doubt about making these recipes i'm like okay i'm my cookbook is up against trained chefs and people that have gone to culinary school and just questioning do i do they need to have more ingredients is this even a real technique that i'm using because i don't know is that how you actually roast garlic or is that how i roast garlic (laughs) because i think in the food world there's definitely it's my background is type and it's, yeah, you don't use 10 different serifs on the same page. That's just this underlying rule, but maybe there's someone that's new and fresh and can use 10 serifs and it works, but very intimidating in the food world. And then I also think in groups of friends, because you just got a little bit emo about your own issues of people going off on their own. I definitely think I have always been curvier, all of my friends have always been like beautiful. And I remember I went to this pool party a couple years ago. I was like, why, like, why am I the only chubs person at this pool party? It, I definitely in some ways too, have always felt a little bit like the chubby fun friend and not necessarily like the hot girl. So I think in that way, and I don't necessarily feel like left out, but it is something I'm, huh, that's interesting. Interesting. (laughs) I would say it's sad. (laughs) It is sad, but it's the reality and it's fine. Yeah. I don't know that I would never categorize you as being as being the chub anything. girl. <laughs> the chub girl. And no. I'm fine with being the ch- and I don't think there's anything wrong with being chubby. I am You're chubby. so striking to me and and I always thought you were you would show up and just be so beautiful and we're going to talk in a little bit about caftans but you own your space and that's not something that skinny people or fat people do very easily. Truthfully. Well, thanks. And it's something, like I said, it's not something that I necessarily, I'm not dwelling on like the fact that all my friends are more attractive than me. No, sure. And I don't necessarily mean it as a compliment. It just is a statement of fact that like, yeah, you come into a space and you know that Mernan's there because she's got her Optimo hat on and she's got her printed Greek or Italian caftan. (laughs) She's making it known that she's in the space. How have you been able to look past all that? And not to say that you have, because all of us, all human beings have to deal with your shortcomings every day to get out there and be the leaders. You say leader, I say protagonist. You're ultimately like the main character of your life story. And Mm -hmm. I think you do a fabulous job of leading from that perspective of just being the person that's out front. I don't know that I try to do that, but 
I think like before lockdown, when I used to have a gym membership, like I would take classes at the gym and no matter what, unless I was actually, even when I was taking classes with people that were 20 years older than me, always the slowest person in the class, like always the person that cannot jump the highest. I remember. And when I used to play sports, like literally ran, I don't even know if you call it running a 12 minute mile, like 13 minute mile. Like I've always been last in those ways of the physicality of me. And I think like in that class, when I am the last and I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman that is 60 years old can run way faster than me, even though I work out every day almost and eat great. Then I think, but I wonder if she was able to write a book. (laughs) So then I compare what are my strengths? It's not being the fastest runner, that's for sure. So what are some of my strengths that I don't have to get super depressed that I can't jump? What's the first thing you think of? When I think about my strengths, mm-hmm. I think about, I have amazing friends. It's How like, did that happen? Because uh, again, I think I just really like people. And oh, I think that you're an them. amazing person. You're an amazing <laughs> friend. That's why you have amazing friends. Well, thanks. I just... You know? One of the first things I always think about is just, and I mean, it might sound like gratitude journal Oprah, but like I am legitimately grateful every single day for my friends and family. Like it's one of those things that just, I feel so grateful for them. Because not everybody, I have other siblings that don't have the kind of friends that I have. And I, I feel really happy about those relationships that I have, even if I run a 14 minute mile. (laughs) You've brought this up a couple of times and I just want to state for the record that I had never run a mile in my life. And then we have to do that in call in, in, in high school and middle school, run a mile. We did. I had never done it before. I moved from a small town in Kansas. Oh, got it. Got it. To St. Louis, Missouri. The very first PE class that I had, it was like, okay, kids, we're going to run around the playground one mile. Here you go. And I was behind the slowest person in the class. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been fast on land, never. And it wasn't until my mom forced me to take a swimming lesson, truthfully, a swimming lesson on the four strokes at the age of eight that summer that I realized like, oh, you don't have to be fast on land if you're fast in the water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I became a swimmer. Like overnight, I realized like, oh, everybody is built differently and we're right. built to do different things. And yeah. so you keep talking about your 14 minute mile. I'm sure mine was 15 minutes. <laughs> I think I referenced that too, because it was such an awareness of my body because I was bigger and you have these PE issued shorts, which I got the large, but I needed a much larger size and they're short to begin with. And like, I'm running, they're like riding up in my crotch. I'm like chafing and just, it was just like this, such this awareness of my body. And not only was I last, but I was also like, feel, felt just disgusting in that uniform. And I remember just, I had such huge boobs too, as a kid. And just like before gym class would start, I would sit on the bench in the locker room and put my knees up and then put the t-shirt over my knees just to try to stretch it out as much as possible. And I think, yeah, I think just that awareness of your body at that young age, it just felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. Gosh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And yet here we are today in a society that seems to be opening up in, in a lot of ways. I don't think as much as it could or should, but I'm raising two daughters in this era of body positivity and having those conversations and, it seems better. Time will tell. 
But what is your take on where we are as it relates to body positivity? I'm remembering as I'm talking to you, the giant inflatable bouncing asses at a Lizzo performance on either like the Grammys or the VMAs or something. Uh And I'm like remembering my nine-year-old who was probably seven or eight at the time watching that and thinking like, how is this going to shape her in a way that Madonna's cone bra impacted the way that I thought about women's breasts as a eight or nine or 10-year-old? Yeah, I think the body positivity movement is such a tricky thing because even with Lizzo, there is so much focus on her body and she's so brave and she's brilliant. She's just like a very talented person that is a large woman. It doesn't make her brave because she's wearing something tight. Like she feels comfortable in her body. Let's stop focusing on that. If you are, let's say, seeing like a person that is traditionally larger, let's say, and they are holding their roles and I love my stretch marks and this is my body. And, but then someone that is that same size doesn't love their body. Then they start thinking, wait, but what's wrong with me? So I, I talk a lot about this topic on my podcast and I think we should just strive more towards body neutrality versus because everyone feels different in their body. And it's like, when you see all this positivity, you're like, but why don't I feel that positive? And I think it can just mess you up even more. But I do think in some ways, whether the Kardashians are problematic, which they are in a lot of ways, I, I think that with them and some other people, we're at least being more open to bodies that aren't stick straight and what, you know, their bodies are very manipulated, but they do have hips, they do have ass, they do have boobs. And that's, you know, causing more plastic surgery. But also I think it's like, oh, but there's a, there are a lot of different body types. And as you, and as you relate it to body neutrality, uh, Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing in those two words next to each other is let's get beyond our bodies and let's talk about what's going on inside of us. Minds. Yeah, for sure. Souls, stomachs, you know? Yeah. And also I struggle right now a lot with my weight. I eat great. I do my best to, I move my body a lot. And it's, I definitely have some hormonal issues. I've definitely got some gut issues. And so I don't know, it's like, let's address the things that are going on in our bodies also, and not just the physicality of the outside. Yeah. And also let's address our voices and talk about how we can raise the voices that need to be raised and perhaps silence some of the ones that are shaping these constructs, you know? Yeah, And also it's just, if Lizzo was on the cover of Vogue or there's a black person on the cover of another magazine, it's like the, the plus size issue, the black issue. Why don't you just do that all the time? Like, why does it have to be a special issue of a magazine? And maybe not to make it a race thing or a sex thing. Why does there need to be one month of the year that we talk about the environment? Why do we need a green yeah. issue? Why can't every issue have something to do with and education of all kinds, of all walks of life, of all types is something that we're failing to do at a federal level that we're failing to do even at a state level. So perhaps our culture should be reflective of that in a way that it hasn't been ever before. And maybe it's up to the culture creators to say to themselves, well, you know what, I'm going to take X number of hours that I used to devote strictly to this one subject, and I'm going to split it up and talk about a number of other subjects and maybe how they relate back to that original subject, because all things are related. Ultimately, it's possible for your job at Dairy Queen to have informed every job you've had before or since and every version of yourself that you've been before or since. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. I ate a lot of cookie dough at Dairy Queen. <clears throat> I would do this thing. Dan, my husband, thinks this is so gross, but the cookie dough is in the freezer at Dairy Queen. Mm -hmm. So what I would do before my shift started, go back, just load up my apron pockets with the frozen cookie dough. (laughs) And then throughout my shift, I would just do a little cough, pop in the cookie dough throughout the day. That's 
amazing. <laughs> I worked at PJ Clark's mm -hmm. in New York City as a bartender and as a server. And our path to the food was through the freezer. Mm -hmm. And every time I passed through the freezer, I smelled the carrot cake. Oh. And I would just... I would resist the best I could, but at least once a shift, it seemed like I would go and I would fist an entire slice, <laughs> yeah. a two handful slice of carrot cake. And I would just put it all in my mouth and, and keep walking. And I'm just, I'm sure there was just cream cheese just dripping onto my, <laughs> onto my necktie. Jess, mm -hmm. I think we are at the point in the show where mm -hmm. we can talk about what's in your cookies this week. Great. And- I would love for you to start by telling us about your favorite cookie. Okay. Let's just go historically favorite cookie that like, if I have not been able to stop thinking about the taste, I can't have it We've now. We've just talked would... about cookie dough for 20 minutes. <laughs> but I would say the Cheryl's cookie. Did you have oh, Cheryl's cookie? I love Cheryl's cookies. Uh, the butterscotch chip Cheryl's cookie. I have not had it in probably... 10 years my dad always used to get them as like a corporate gift or something from someone right. so they were always at his because i didn't live with him but i would go there for christmas so we would always have these huge boxes of cheryl's cookie the butterscotch chip cheryl's cookie hands down favorite cookie all time i have not had it in forever cheryl's is this catalog company and you can send cookies literally anywhere in the world and so do they I still was, exist yes okay i was living overseas uh, for a time. And my parents sent me Cheryl's cookies for my birthday. Oh my and it God. was like 36 cookies, but it was enough that for like 10 years afterwards, people that I knew that lived there would ask me, remind me the name of that cookie company. <laughs> yes, they're so good. And their holiday cookies, the simple iced Christmas cookie, yeah. individually wrapped Cheryl's just it's just the greatest cookie of all time. This has to be on somebody's Christmas list. It's, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Love Cheryl's cookie. God. Okay. So, so yeah. tell me, what have you been reading, watching, listening to, shopping for this week? What's in your digital cookies this week? I have not purchased it, but Erica Badu, which I don't even really listen to her music at all, but I'm very fascinated by her. Wait, and wait, wait. Before you go on, did you ever regularly listen to Erica Badu? No. She had a couple hits that I was super into, but right. I never... Tyrone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like one of the greatest songs of all time. But I, I've just always really appreciated her. Just very... Just her style is so unique. Like she's, yeah. She doesn't look like anyone else. And I just... And I think in our culture right now, where pretty much everybody looks the same, she still looks different. And I just love that about her. But I saw in an article or something that she was coming out with incense that was made of her burned underwear. So what? it had. <laughs> so the incense is made of her underwear because she thinks her. I think it's called Badu Pussy Incense. Yeah, so yeah. I got on, so I signed up for the mailing list to know when it came out because I love incense. And I'm like, I want to know what her underwear smells like in incense. So I signed up for it and it'll send you an email when it's available again, but I miss it every single time because it sells out so fast. Wow. So I had gotten an email that it was going that a new product was available. So I went to the site to see when they were going to be releasing the incense again. So that was in my cookies. That's so cool. There was a time where I listened to her a lot. I, I will admit, I was a big fan. I've seen her in concert a bunch of times. And then I stopped. And I don't know why. I, I don't know. I think she kind of fell off the radar a little bit. There was also the rise of Nicki Minaj and right. I think a lot of that type of music and her music is very different than that. And so 
I still love that stuff though. I love that. Oh, like of new, new soul. I, I don't know. There's, there's something. I miss that. I, I want that. Like, it probably still exists. I just don't like, I used to love Anthony Hamilton. Yeah. Oh that gosh. song Charlene. His, yeah. So yeah. So I, I would suggest if, even if you don't like Erica Badu, her merch, aside from the incense, it's very interesting. And her whole little Badu world is, it's an interesting website. Yeah. So it's baduworldmarket.com, B-A-D-U worldmarket.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? Margaret Klein Solomon is the head of the Climate Mobilization Project. She wrote a book called Facing the Climate Emergency, and she is very passionate about climate change, the climate crisis, and she is a psychologist. So she not only talks about the actual climate change itself, but the main focus of her work is also just the psychological effects that climate change has on us because it is extremely overwhelming if you step back and think about how our world is falling apart. And then Claire Crawley? She is the current bachelorette right now. It's very, the season is wild. And I will have to say, I have not watched The Bachelor, Bachelorette, probably four seasons because the leads were very annoying to me, but I had to get in on this season because it is like no other season you've ever seen. She leaves the show three episodes in they're on quarantine. They're on lockdown. She's 39, which is in bachelor world, basically like a grandma, even though she's not old at all. She has been on three different, she's been on Bachelor in Paradise, Bachelor Games. And so this season is wild. And so there's been rumors like why she actually left. And so I had found this New York Mag article about her liking tweets, basically dissing the Bachelor franchise that they forced her out. And I just found that article to be very interesting. (laughs) Whoa. That's juicy. I love when people do deep dives on people's Twitters. I just hope that they never do a deep dive on my internet history. <laughs> I know. It's I know. So it's, terrifying. It's it's and I mean, how many times have you accidentally liked something that you didn't maybe mean to like? I, I don't know why, but I'm always fascinated by those articles about following and unfollowing. Yeah, and yeah, it's just very fascinating to me. So anyway, highly recommend that season. This season is just it's bizarre so anyway that's what i was looking up with that cookie and then celebs with indo so i wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you about this when we were having the conversation there are a number of celebrities who talk about it who've drawn attention to it i had looked up celebs with endo because i had a, a big when you write a book way before you think that you even need to you have a pr marketing call with your team and so i was having a call with my team at penguin about the book launch and you know they were talking about sending the book to influencers with Indo and so I had googled celebs with Indo because I wanted to check out all the ones with Indo all of the ones on the list that I found I actually knew so I just always check just there were no surprises but no surprises but you'd be surprised your first book was blurbed by Lena Dunham Mm -hmm. has Indo Mm -hmm. who has Indo and then I know Julianne Huff. Yep. Padma Lakshmi. Mm-hmm. Amy Schumer recently has talked about the fact that she has endo, which was not something that I knew until she talked about it. It's rumored that Marilyn Monroe also had endo. Oh, wow. And it's one of the reasons she had chronic debilitating pain a lot of her life. And so it's rumored that she had endo. I read that. I read that in a biography of hers. Oh, really? Yeah. About the pain, not about About the the pain. Yeah. Yeah. That she was constantly in pain. And that was part of the reason that she couldn't sleep, which is what led to her taking barbiturates. It's very sad, but there's a BBC investigation and they interviewed over 13,000 people with endometriosis and almost 50% of them said they either had suicidal thoughts or had tried to take their life. Wow. And so this is not just a painful period situation, mentally, it can very much alter your life. 
Yeah. And we'd connected when you were getting ready to launch knowyourendo.com. And you had set a goal for yourself to reduce the number of misdiagnoses. Is that right? Wasn't it something like one? It takes like you remember that. Yeah. My goal is just to get the 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 time down. It takes an average of 10 years and eight doctors to get a diagnosis. That's if you have the luxury you have the ability to see eight doctors. And I think we all trust our doctors, right? I mean, I get messages all the time from people that say, they say I don't have it, but I'm convinced that I do. It's You have to be diagnosed through a surgery. It's not a blood test. It's not an ultrasound. So you have to also be able to have insurance or be able to afford out of pocket a laparoscopic surgery. It's very depressing. (laughs) It is. And it's also unfathomable that it is so difficult. Mm -hmm. That it is so difficult to to discover, to be discovered. I don't even know how to talk about it really without talking about the broken healthcare system. Yeah. And then you tack on, let's say you're transgender, which you can be just straight up denied care because you're transgender. And then you have the black and brown community who their diagnosis time is tack on 50% higher. And I think that's the thing that is crazy is it's not just, let's make a little bit of change here. It's like the whole system has to change. Like my surgery, my last surgery for my endometriosis cost $20,000. That was not covered by insurance. I, I had the luxury of being able to borrow that money. I, what would I have done if I didn't have someone I could have borrowed that money from? Put it on a credit card? I don't have a, a credit card limit. That It's just, it's writing this book was just, I went to bed crying so many nights because I'm like, I, I want to put a bow on this and end this with a hug and say, you can fix this since a lot of this care is just not available to people. And until we start talking about that, we're not going to solve problems. Yeah. Let's take it to a lighter note. Talk to me about, <laughs> talk to me about this recipe that I'm going to share with my, with my listeners. You have a, a young son. How old is Sid now? Six. He just turned six. Sid is six. I love mm-hmm. that. He's got yeah. the greatest name. I'm proud of his name. <laughs> yeah. It's truly great. And I love what you're doing to celebrate Instead of having trick-or-treating, you're making s'mores. We got a little cute patio in our backyard. I never thought we'd even have a backyard living in Chicago for so long. And so Dan had the idea, because we're not going trick-or-treating, he said, I'm going to buy one of those film projector, like a digital projector. We're going to project a fun Halloween movie on our wall. I'm going to get a little fire pit, and we're going to make s'mores. And so... I think that link I sent you, I was trying to track down vegan marshmallows because marshmallows have gelatin in them, which are animal bones, which kind of gross me out to eat animal bones in yeah. my marshmallows. That's so cool. Yeah. I, so, yeah. Have you ever made marshmallows before? I have not made marshmallows. I actually looked up a couple recipes for vegan marshmallows. I'm like, I'm just going to buy these. Yeah, it's tough. It's actually really hard to make without gelatin. <laughs> I think so. It's because you can use like aquafaba and all this stuff. I'm like, no, I'll just buy them. I'll support <laughs> the person that's making these. Yeah. And it's a great idea to buy them vegan because of the fact that they do have gelatin and we, you just don't need gelatin. No, you don't. And so the company that I ended up finding them, it, it, and I knew the company I was thinking about, but I just was like, are there other companies? It's called Dandies and they make vegan marshmallows they make big ones small ones and they make halloween ones and christmas ones it's pretty cool and they're from chicago oh they are yeah i'm gonna get some i'm trying to remember if i've seen them before they make peppermint ones yeah we got to do that yeah sounds awesome okay you have an obsession with dr elizabeth stanley (laughs) oh yes i do (laughs) who is it dr elizabeth stanley okay Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, I feel like I'm single white femaleing her at this point because I talk about her so much. <laughs> she wrote this book called Widen the Window that is 
100,000 times the best book ever written on stress and trauma. And I've read a lot of books on stress and trauma. She is just this amazing person that it's not like some sort of Instagram fake fucking doctor that's like, you should meditate. She has studied trauma and stress and has been through a lot of trauma and stress herself. She is a sexual abuse survivor. She toured what I might've been Afghanistan. I'm not sure. And she actually developed a program to help stress and trauma because she believes that when you have deep trauma, debilitating trauma, that a lot of the practices like breathing, like that can actually trigger those responses because when you are in those very traumatic situations, like what happens to your breathing? So a lot of breath-based meditation does not work for people that have been through a lot of stress and trauma. So she wrote this incredible book about it. I was underlining 1000 things. It's like Harry Potter thick and she's just the coolest. She's a psychologist. And I just think everyone should know about her work. She's not an Instagram, which makes her even cooler. I've interviewed her once on my podcast and I'm actually going to have her back again after we get the election results. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I recently saw an XY graph that measured the level of stress of the population of the United States. Mm. And they were looking at like current state versus other periods in time through history. Mm -hmm. And we are at a higher level of stress today than we were in the run-up to the Civil War. Yes. (laughs) And I think what's so tricky is that if you have come from a history of having trauma, whether you were sexually abused, you were in a horrific accident, you are a veteran, this can trigger a lot of that underlying trauma that you might have never dealt with before. And that's why I also love Dr. Elizabeth Stanley is because she actually, the program that she has created to help people she has done four clinical trials with it. And it's not a medicine. It's just a practice that she does. And she did those trials with people that served in combat. So that have truly faced some of the most significant high stress traumatic things you'll ever know. Her work is just so special to me. Does she also do any sort of coursework? Yeah, she just actually launched a course that I can send you a link to it. I've been talking everybody. I'm like, you should take this course. But yeah, she just developed a course. It's um, launching, I think, November 16th or something. But yeah. Do you find that you have PTSD? A (laughs) hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. And I think just, we don't need to get deep into it, but I think just there's been the last five years of my life has had a lot of traumatic experiences. And yeah, for sure. And and I think reading her book, I mean, my child, I had a lot of traumatic experiences. I'm not talking about just like people calling me stinky, just like hardcore things that children should not go through. Those things can just build and build and build and build until they just erupt if you don't deal with them. And that happened to me, it erupted. I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Her work is very important. A lot mm-hmm. of her work too, which I love, is not comparing our stress and trauma to others. Right. So maybe your stepmom didn't get run over by a bus because it's very rare, but maybe you have a really high stress job. And I feel like whatever your stress is, your stress and your body will internalize it as high stress, no matter what it is. So I think it's important not to compare. I don't even think that we realize how much stress and trauma we've been through in this last year. I think that's why I'm so passionate about Dr. Stanley's work right now. It's just hit after hit that we just have to keep going and pushing through. We haven't even recognized how traumatic it's been. Yeah. Because you experienced that 
trauma and that stress, like it is in your body and changes like the epigenetic of everything. And so then for the rest of your life, until you actually deal with it, you process trauma and stress in a different way than somebody else. Right now in this time, it's important that we all acknowledge and realize we're all different and we all do things differently. And we're all, we're all different. We all have different strengths. I may not be as fast on land as I am in the water. You may mm-hmm. not be, you may be the person that's the cultivator of all of the wonderful things that we all need in our lives. I think that's ultimately what I've seen you do time and time again, is you've showcased, hey, there's this whole world out there that you're not paying attention to. Mm-hmm. You should be paying attention to it. Oh, thanks. It's awesome. So Thank whose you. face would you like to see on the $20 bill? I answer that question, where's my Harriet Tubman? Because like she was supposed to be on the 20. I'm curious if you're actually down with Harriet Tubman or would you like to see Dr. Stanley? <laughs> yeah, true, true. I'm not a Kanye Harriet Tubman denier saying that she right. actually oh harmed, but yeah. I just, I think that because the process had started, I'd like to put Harriet Tubman before Dr. Stanley for the bill. But just before. Just maybe Julius Irving, Dr. J could be (laughs) another choice. Okay. Actually, that was, I was really hoping we would get to talk about Dr. J because you talked about this. You've talked about this in a number of different venues. Why do you love, why do you love Dr. J? Fucking cool, man. He's so slick and suave and just graceful. And he demanded money and was able to be successful in a time that it was very hard for, it still is very hard for a black man to be successful. He changed things for the game. And I just, and still, I, I don't know if you saw his documentary, but he's also been through a lot. And I just, I remember I broke my foot, my ankle, I'm sorry, when I was in the fifth grade and I didn't want anybody to really sign it, but I did have my dad write on my on the bottom of it, Dr. J. So whenever I would put my foot up, people could see Dr. J because I broke my ankle playing Nerf basketball. So just wanted to say Dr. J is with me. I, I just have always loved him so much for some reason. That's a that's a tattoo in the making right there. That's <laughs> yeah. that's so necessary. So before Jordan, I was obsessed with Dr. J. And I vividly remember watching him in one of his later games. He played for the Virginia Squires, the New York Nets, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, Number six on the Sixers. And it's just like when you watch him, when you watch old footage of him, and it's I don't want to be like, oh, the old times. But when you watch LeBron or somebody like that dunk, it's, oh, that's amazing and it's powerful. But when you watch Dr. J, it's like this the symphony or something, the way that he's just moving his body. It's so like long and lean and graceful. It's just such a beautiful image. He danced. He like, yes, dance. That's what it is. Stretched it out. And Jordan Mm. played like that too. There's that great photo though of Dr. J and Larry Bird. Oh my God. It's my favorite photo ever. It needs to be in every sports bar in America. Yes, It's just hands on throats. That's how they played basketball. And it's crazy. The the Pistons, that era of basketball, like the bad boys, just bring that back to me. You liked that. everyone's yeah, everyone's a little bit too pussy now, I feel like. It's just a little <laughs> bit too it's just let them play. Yeah. There's a super cut of like early. 80s late 70s basketball on rex chapman's twitter account which if you don't follow rex chapman on twitter Uh it's awesome but it's like just everybody just going at it it's brawlers and uh he has it pinned to the top of his twitter account rex chapman was uh, a basketball player he was a high school phenom played for the university of kentucky got into some trouble with drugs and has rehabilitated himself and is like a motivational speaker of the highest order now and he has the best Twitter account because he collects all of the happiest memes on the internet and he puts them on Twitter. He's one of the reasons that I stay on Twitter. Great. Okay. What article of clothing is your battle armor? 
caftan. And why is that? Love caftans. When you live with a very intense inflammatory condition and you physically just cannot button your pants, there is something that feels so liberating and free when you put on the caftan. Nothing is touching you. Nothing is tight. Nothing's cinching you. And I just truly feel like I can just be in my body. And again, when I think when you're living with a chronic condition like endo, you just want to give your body a break. And caftans give me a break. And what I love so much about them is that they are also pretty chic. So I have an issue with athleisure. I think it's worn way too much. If you go to the airport, I still want to look nice. Like I don't want to wear leggings and tennis shoes. Like I'm not going to the gym. And so caftans to me are this elevated athleisure in a way. Totally. We talked about dressing up for the airport on your podcast. <laughs> oh, we I did. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying you need to be all no. mad men and wear a dress and a suit, but just, I don't know, elevate your game. Like, I just don't think you should wear workout clothes everywhere. I I think you should only <laughs> wear workout clothes when you work out, yeah, but I, I think I am in the minority now. hundred <laughs> percent. Dude, when I, even when, even when I was living in Chicago, I used to work out at the Bally's on Clark street. I would not walk to the gym, which was three blocks away from my house and workout clothes. I would put them in my bag and I would change when I got there. I just am like, it's not a look that I feel cool in at all. Yeah. I always felt like because I overpronate the footwear that I choose when I run my 14 minute mile, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I run in a pair of shoes that are like the ugliest things on the planet, but they help my body to to feel right. If you look back Elizabeth Taylor pretty much only wore caftans. Right. So if you look at the most chic photos of her, she's lounging in a caftan. She looks incredible and she's probably pretty comfortable. So I'm all about caftans and I think that they should be worn more. And I think that women should feel a little bit more free in their bodies when they wear them. You don't even have to wear underwear with them. Are you recommending that? I don't wear underwear with them. Unless I'm to hear first, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What is your favorite background noise? The sound of rain is my favorite background noise. Why is that? It's just soothing. It's calming. And I think, especially right now, it's been very strange, but I crave rain because it feels like something different is happening. It feels like Groundhog Day right now being inside all the time so much. When it rains, oh, something different is happening. Mm-hmm. So I like it for that, but I've just have always, I feel comforted with the sound of rain. When I was having a lot of problems writing my book in the beginning, just could not get there. My husband, Dan, said, let's find you a place where it rains all the time and has really good vegan food. Because I think that will help you. And so I went to Portland for three days, knocked out like two chapters. It rained the whole time I was there. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. I had the greatest time ever. What is your motto? Let's let's end with that. Oh, did I write just do it? And then I wrote as like an asterisk, not in Nike sort of way. I just really think... I talk to so many people that say, I want to do this. I want to try this. I want just do it, man. Do it. Just why are let's stop talking about it. Just go try it. And so I think I've always done that. I'm not saying I've never been fearful to try things, but I guess I just have never really felt the fear at not succeeding at it because if it doesn't work, I'll just do something different. That's exactly right. That's what failure is. Failure is is the bellwether. Hey, you should go do something else other than this because this isn't working. But at least yeah. you tried. 
Yeah, I've never, I've had different companies. I mean, was my cookbook a New York Times bestseller? No, I feel really proud of it. I just, I think just do things. So maybe instead of just do it, just go do the thing that you want to do. Everyone that I am attracted to, everybody that I love and care for, they're all doers. They're people that if you can lean, you can clean. They know (laughs) that. Inherently, they know that. I'm very happy to know you because you inspire me to be a better doer. That's one thing that like, I've never really understood how people who have a lot going on and by a lot going on, I mean, they're interested in a lot of things. There are doers that I admire. They do one thing, right? And they do it better than anybody because it's their one thing. But you seem to do a lot of things. You seem to do them all very well at optimal level. And yeah, I'm just so happy to see you continuing to succeed in everything that you do and everything that you do. Thank you. That's nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I keep doing things, right? That's and that's right. the thing is I, when you say you're attracted to people that do things, I'm also attracted to people to do things. I don't even care if the thing they do, that they succeed at it. I just am attracted to people that are wanting to at least try. Yeah. It's uh, there, there's no such thing as try. You're either doing it or you're not doing it. And I know mm-hmm. that we're quoting Yoda there, but like <laughs> the truth is just do it as Lauren Wilkins Block's dad says, do it now. As you've said, do the thing that you want to. Don't think about doing it. Don't say, I want to try it. Just try it. If it works, the universe will tell you that. The world will tell you that. And I think that's such a good lesson. Jess, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Really loved it. It's great catch up. (laughs) I got to go. Yeah. We talked way longer than I intended to, but I would talk to you for years. I could just sit and hang. I I guess this is a two hour and 10 minute way of telling you that I love you. I love you too. And maybe you'll probably edit it down to an hour 45. (laughs) My goal is always 30 minutes and it ends up always being an hour. So 30 minutes. Yeah. There's no way you could do a 30 minute podcast. You could put that in the front of this episode. (laughs) Bye Jess. I love you. Love you too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica Murnan. Find her work for Know Your Endo at knowyourendo.com and learn more about her and subscribe to her popular podcast at jessicamurnan.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-M-U-R-N-A-N-E.com. I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be Lean Lux founder, Paul Munford. This is the No First Podcast. The No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out. Our theme song is That's Right by Pop Villains. Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are. Blurg. Blurg. (laughs) Bye, Jess.